Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is powerhouse vocalist and member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, David Coverdale. Best known as the frontman for First Deep Purple and later Whitesnake, David's music dominated rock radio in the 70s and 80s, and his video-friendly presence made him unescapable in the heyday of MTV. After Whitesnake, David's collaboration with Jimmy Page led to the platinum-selling Coverdale Page album in 1993. David has released five solo albums and 13 studio albums with Whitesnake. The band's latest release, Greatest Hits, Revisited, Remixed, Remastered 2022, is out in all configurations everywhere this summer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest today is David Coverdale. Hi, David. Hi, darling. How very nice to see you. How are Hello, you? kids. Nice to see you, too. Out there in radio land and TV land and podcast land, everybody. Show and tell, but I was arrested coming in. <laughs> <laughs> so we are speaking today. You are in Reno by the Sea. Yes, Reno by the Sea. We have a studio here, which is just designated for all things Coverdale and Whitesnake called Hook City. And it's perfect. The last four albums, I think, five, if not, we've made in this environment. And it's incredible. And most of the videos, too. It's just an exciting thing. Ten minutes from my primary residence, which thankfully we didn't lose six months ago in a fire. Two things living up in the Tahoe area have completely impressed me. That's the speed of bears. Because <laughs> I've had to change the punch out of my house. And the other thing was wildfires promoted by winds. I've never seen anything move so fast. You know, by the time we first saw the fire and by the time we were evacuated, it was 30 minutes. It was wow. a tiny plume of smoke that turned into wow. a, a raging, horrifying fire coming straight at you. How long have you been a full-time American uh, resident and American citizen, Oh, uh, well, I started to live here back in the Deep Purple days, so that will be 74, and then moved back to Europe. And I lived in England for a little while while I got Whitesnake together. And then I moved to live in Munich. It's kind of been a tax exile since I joined Deep Purple. <laughs> no, it's true. Nobody expects to have a five-decade career, but... You know, when you're generating significant monies for particular times and living like a Saudi prince, you have to take every advantage that Nevada has to offer. You know, we're also <laughs> right now getting a lot of you guys, a lot of Californians coming into the state. I'm just buying into California. We just bought a beach house in Malibu. So I'm very excited nice. about that. Very nice. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah. So we have the best of mountains, you know, privacy. We have a beautiful studio, which is 10 minutes door to door. And life is extraordinary. 2020 was supposed to be my farewell tour. And of course, because of COVID, that was off the table. So we're looking now at starting spring 2022. 
that time, I hadn't announced it, and we sold the whole tour out. I hadn't announced it my retirement. So this time, the entire world is going to be on the road, and I think it's appropriate for me to go out being Tarzan doing Still of the Night at 7. <laughs> Just a little bit, you know, intimidating. But, uh, I, I feel good physically. I'm in good contact through insurance with all my doctors to make sure everything's kosher. I'm hoping it can come together so I can do my, literally, my appreciation and gratitude tour of the world for 50 years of an extraordinary adventure. We look forward to seeing that live. Mm. Can't wait. Obviously, the opportunity to see Whitesnake in your curtain call will be yeah. something to see that the everybody last, needs to the see. The last hurrah, the legitimate last hurrah. Can't wait. So I would love to kind of back up yes. and start at the beginning. I was telling you what we like to do in these conversations is just talk about your life and your career and your place in the history of contemporary music. I love the fact that your influences musically growing up were R&B and soul. Completely. Talk a little bit about those influences. Well, the first five years of my life, which I only relatively recently discovered, I spent most with my maternal grandmother who had two teenage children. Sadly, um, my Uncle Eddie and my Auntie Sylvia have passed, but my Auntie Sylvia and I were like soul brother and sister. It was extraordinary. And of course, they had this enormous piece of furniture called a gramophone that you had to hand, put the needle in. You know, They had a stack of needles that you had to slip in and put on the record and be really, really careful. It wasn't an automatic arm. And then this beastly sound would come out of it. Well, in those days, my uncle and aunt would spend their pocket money on singles. And that's where I got an EP at that time in England, was the Jailhouse Rock EP. And I was six years old. And I already could sing. My mum's side of the family was singers. And I learned basically Irish protest songs, Irish rebellion songs. My nana was full on Dublin Irish. But Sylvia giving me access to these records of Little Richard, Chuck Berry. And I have no education in this. All I was singing was Hearts of Oak, our amen, you know, patriotic bullshit, propaganda, British folk songs, jolly, you know, salty sea dogs and all this kind of stuff. And how special we all are in Britain. So to hear this and to have it resonate at some frequency in my North Yorkshire working class body is is still something I'm not really sure, but it connected with my spirit, my heart and soul, my huge fear of influence, of course, of still those records, the early Elvis, but Little Richard, how could anybody sing like that? And then, you know, through trying to emulate him later in my life, that projection that helped me build this powerful bastard of a voice that I've been blessed with. But it's learning from all these and all these strange accidents that the universe offer. I'm at school, secondary modern it was called there, like early high school. We had music lessons. The music teacher was ill. The science teacher had a free period. So he comes stuck in with his pipe and, you know, carries the big school record player in. He said, I have no idea what to talk about, so I'm just going to play you some records I like which was Lead Belly, wow. which was Robert Johnson. And, and still to this day, I can listen to them any time of day or night. You know, when I look at the blues, to me, 
the blues is just another word for personal expression. It doesn't have to be a 12 bar, you know, it doesn't have to have slide guitar in it or anything. It's you telling your story, which, and also it doesn't have to be songs to cut your wrist by. It can be songs of great celebration, songs of celebratory sex or desire or longing, heartbreak. And that led me, all of those songs led me to Motown in the 60s, courtesy of George Harrison doing a Smokey Robinson and the Miracles song on one of the early Beatles records. Uh-huh. And those days, of course, no internet and the libraries didn't have any information. So this was a lot of legwork to local record uh-huh. companies. And reading the vinyl covers, like every part, even where the record was produced, you know, the sleeve, Hayes, Middlesex or whatever. But, and that led me to Sax Fault. You know, and these things were just, you know, that was more sassy and greasy than the more. But these singers, musicians, composers, production, it's immortal to me. I know how important it is. Like when I have a very successful so- social media, I take my responsibility as a musician who's presenting music to people really seriously. You know, I write human themes, physical themes, search for direction. Those are the things that are my impetus. And that's all come from learning from basically Black America. Mm. When you joined your first band, was that Vintage 67? Is that the first band? I bullshitted my way into that by accident. Well, how old were you? Were like 15? Yeah, yeah. I just sang an a cappella version of God Only Knows at a school concert. Uh, and had all these girls standing around me. I go, oh, not too shabby, you know. The, the beginning of, oh, stand up there, bare ass naked and sing, and you get lucky, you know. And this girl said, oh, you've got a really good voice. My brother's group in those days, we weren't bands. Bands were like Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller. Um, <laughs> Big bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother's group is looking for a singer, and I'm going, oh, really? I'm calling my bluff, you know. So that night, my, I lived in a pub uh, in a place called Sulpen by the Sea, and my mom downstairs was the ground floor was like all the bars, et cetera, et cetera, music room. And we lived on the second and third floor. And my mom comes up and said, there's uh, four lads out here. Want to see you? What have you done? <laughs> like I was going to get a good ass kicking. But I have no idea. So I come down and of course, it's this young lady's brother who said, I hear you can sing. <laughs> you know, oh my God, um, my ass was doing Lamar's. So <laughs> I wonder, and, and this is really kind of romantic. All of these streets were leading down to the ocean, the North Sea, opposite Belgium. And they were all Diamond Street, Pearl Street, Amber Street, Garnet Street. They were all precious stones. So we all lived in these <laughs> streets like, like a Beatles movie. You know, we all lived kind of next door to each other. So I auditioned singing through a 12-watt bass amp, WEM, early WEM stuff, 12-watt, bear in mind, while the bass player is playing. <laughs> I've got a tape recorder microphone. There's a drum set in this bedroom, along with a single bed. You know, it was one of the guys, I think it must have been the drummer's bedroom. And two guitar players throwing through the same little amplifier, you know. So we're crunched into the area the size of a restroom, and I got the job. And that was the beginning of amazingness. <laughs> so from that point, you never looked back? Well, no. At that time, I was, um, from the age of seven, I discovered how much I love to draw. It's all that self-expression again. So I also heard that there was a school where you could go to learn how to draw, which was my local art college. 
It's so funny that in the 60s, like Townsend, Clapton, all these guys went to Sid Barrett, you know, the Pink Floyd people, all art school. And I had no idea I'm going to art school to learn how to be a, an art teacher and a graphic design artist. So that was my abiding passion. And music had to come in and just say to me, OK, you spend three months doing a painting and then somebody goes, very nice, David, what are you trying to say? Whereas I can immediately, spontaneously tell you exactly how I'm feeling. Jubilant, sad, joyful, amusing, happy. And that's the expression of music. It's just such a, a human instrument of expression. So you're in this first local band with your schoolmate's brother and his friends. Yeah. And then you that band lasted a couple of years and then oh, you joined. I don't think so. No, no I not. Think we, I think we gave up after <laughs> when we out of college. But we came second in a talent contest to a guy who would beat himself upon the head with a tin tray singing Julie Andrews songs from the sound of music. I shit thee not. <laughs> Tough competition. Tough oh competition out there. We lost. I'm going, oh, I'm going to art college. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> what happened then, there's a very close friend of mine, and I'm very happy to say still an incredible chef and sommelier in the north of England called Eugene McCoy. We were at college together, and I'm from Little Seaside Town, and this is Middlesbrough, this big shipping port, and like almost like our the other coast of Liverpool. And Eugene, you know, we'd be singing going down the corridors and go, oh, my God, you've got a great voice. I said, oh, thanks, Eugene. And he was the singer with a local band, but he owned up like, I'm, I'm rubbish, but, you know, my name, Eugene McCoy's Elastic Band, you know. So he said, shall I put your name out there, see if anybody's interested? And that was the beginning of the kind of seriousness of music. So I went from there into a band called Denver Mule, very gifted musicians, but the guitar players only had one telecaster so one could only play at a time and then very generously pass the guitar to the other one but from there my talent appeared to be older than me which is not the case anymore it's kind of cool. <laughs> but in those days the older bands in the area were going "Ooh, if we give you 15 pounds a week all oh, right waving money under my significant nose I went and joined these other bands and stuff and actually got my first paychecks as a musician. First payment I ever received as a singer with a band Vintage 67 was a Coca-Cola and a chicken sandwich. That was it. Nothing and it went like that for a while, even with Deep Purple. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you feel like you got serious as a musician? When did you hit the road? When were you touring? Oh, I've had a really blessed time. Ian Pace of Deep Purple... Once I got the job of Purple, was sitting in the office around this ginormous table, the whole band and the two managers, and we're talking about the first American tour and something called the Starship, which was a private, I think, 727, uh, customized with just two pilots who didn't drink or whatever, uh, three flight attendants, one of whom was an ex-girlfriend of, we've discovered later, uh, of Elvis Presley, because she gave me a bunch of his memorabilia that he'd given her, which I treasured and lost in one of my countless marriages, Michael, I believe. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, he said, you are a lucky bastard, and I do know that, because apparently I'm a very gifted manifester. When something needs to happen, it, that I need something to happen, it tends to happen, which is magic, and I don't take it for granted. 
But Ian Pace was the first one to observe, oh, my God, your first American tour is not going to be in a shitty rental car, you know, <laughs> poking you in the back of the head, you know, taking... No broken down drive. van. You know, you're going to fly around in a fucking private jet. And I'm going, okay, I'm in. Let's talk about that for a second, because yeah. you're playing in these local bands, and then you see an ad in The Melody Maker that there's an audition for this band who's really well-known, this band called mm. Deep Purple. Yeah. Well, I'd opened for Deep Purple at Bradford University just literally after Ian Gillen and Roger Glover had joined. And John Lord, God bless his heart, I miss him desperately, the keyboard player, he said, I enjoyed your set immensely. You know, we were opening. This was the, the government. He said, have you got a phone number? My mum and dad never had a phone. You know, it was, oh, my God, pigeon post. You know, meet me at so-and-so, so-and-so. I gave him my address, and every day I woke up and ran downstairs, even before my cup of tea, to see if there was any mail from John Lord. His expression was, in case this other guy doesn't work out. Wow. <laughs> Which, of course, sadly, he did. Ultimately, that's uh, what it meant to be. So I'd read an ad in Melody Maker. I was feeling kind of, oh, my God, I'm never getting... I'm stuck here. I'd left art college. There was financial difficulty in my home. Both my parents were unemployed. Very challenging time economically. And I wasn't getting a grant as a student. So I went, oh, bugger this, I'll, I'll get. And I wasn't making that much as a local musician. So I thought, where can I get a job? And these friends of mine said, you know, well, you can keep your hair long and work in a boutique. <laughs> so I worked in a boutique when I called Gentry in Redcar on the northeast coast of England. And that's where I was working when I was sitting at lunchtime looking at the Melody Maker. And there's a picture of John Lord with a byline was saying, Deep Purple are still looking for a singer and are considering unknowns. I folded wow. up, put it down, got some, some change, went round the corner to a public phone box. As you know, in the north, we never had <laughs> convenient phones and called up my local manager who had booked Deep Purple in a venue called Red Car Jazz Club. Um, very popular local venue that The Who played and Cream, uh, just amazing oasis of, of joy of my youth. And I said, uh, do you have the numbers for the Deep Purple office? And he goes, why? I said, I'm going to go after the job. Well, when he caught his breath, <laughs> he went, OK, you're serious? I said, yeah, yeah, why not? And I was only familiar with a couple of the Purple stuff. It wasn't the things I was listening to. Anyway, he said, call me back at six. I'll see what I can do. I called him up at six and said, they want a picture and a tape. I'm going, what the f I don't have any pictures. So I got a picture from my mother as me saluting as a Boy Scout. <laughs> she said, you better, better make sure I get this back. And I wrote, dear Deep Purple, as you can see, I'm always prepared. <laughs> I don't have any recent, and I'm somewhat inebriated on, on the tape because I didn't have anything else. If I hadn't sent anything, it would never have happened. My life would have had a different journey. What was on the tape? Um, Bill with this version of Lonely Town, Lonely Street, like a Joe Cocker, The Letter. And was that something you just whipped up, or was that something no, you No, 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 that was the only thing we had. I'd gone with a bunch of musicians to 10CC's studio called Strawberry Studios in Stockport with a, a very, very unsympathetic engineer. So he says... All of this studio mic coming down from the ceiling, and I'm a, I hold the mic stand, and I use it 
to help me get up to these notes that only dogs can hear, you know? And I say to him, uh, do you have a hand mic I can use? He went, of course not. No, it's a studio. And I said, well, I, I, I don't use it. He said, if you can't sing like that, you can't sing. That could have been a career, I wonder, had I knocked onto the spare guitar case, which was loaded with cider, the best, you know, hardcore cider still with bits of the barrel in it, you know, <laughs> massive masculine stuff that Popeye would have had had he known about it. So I end up singing like, you know, the Dutch Courage, the edges are off, and, I'm, and, and these are the, the things that apparently the Purple Office was floor to ceiling in tapes, records, you know, too early for cassettes, you know, but tapes and stuff. So each member of the band or their reps had come in and take an armful of tapes home, you know, and Ian Pace had come in, the drummer, he grabbed an armful, and it's my thing. He calls Richie Blackmore and says, I found somebody interesting. He's got a sense of humor. He sent a picture of himself as a fucking Boy Scout. And Richie goes, you're joking. You know, one of those things. He goes, no. And he said he's always prepared. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing, he's, he's rat-assed drunk. These are the words, rat-assed drunk, but he's got the kind of tone we're looking for. Wow. And one of my favorite compliments I've ever received in my life is from Richie Blackmore, who said, you have a man's voice. <laughs> and that was just, immediately I got hairs on my chest. Well, how old were you when you got the job? I got it for my 21st birthday. That's unbelievable when you think yeah, about it now. Yeah. You, you were 21 years old. You're joining Deep Purple, who were a very, very successful band. Huge at, at that, that time, point. yeah. They had already had Smoke on the Water and, and some of the big records. Yeah. So did John Lord remember that you were the guy from the college gig? No, nah, no, 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 no. So much, you know, they'd had a remarkable success. And it had continued, you know, the first album I made was Burn. Uh, and we were the biggest selling artists. Sadly, in, in my divorces, I lost a beautiful billboard plaque that said top selling artists of 1975, Deep Purple, which was pretty amazing. You know? So at the age of 21, you go in, you get the gig for Deep Purple, and you go and you record the Burn album. Yeah. And then you play this massive gig for 200,000 people. For double it, double it. They can't tell the truth of how many people were there. <laughs> but that was called California Jam, right? So was that what you were talking about when you were on the fancy plane on your first trip to America? Well, actually, if you see the ABC presentation of the California Jam, we land. That's the starship that we land in. In the contract, all the artists appearing had to stay at the Holiday Inn in Ontario. And Richie and I were watching the traffic because he'd insisted in the contract that although we were headlining, that he wanted to be us to be the first band on stage to use lights after a whole day of people not having any, you know, just daylight. Right. And that was the strict element that he insisted on. So he and I are standing, drink in hand, leaning on the balcony outside our rooms, watching this insane traffic going to the Ontario Speedway. It just never stopped. It must have been like the Woodstock stuff, you know. <laughs> it was every so often you'd look out and it looked like a golden stream, you know, in, in the distance. It was pretty wild. How um, nervous were you to perform in front of the, so many people? Yes, probably very nervous. But, we, you know, we had a very accomplished bar, um, <laughs> which helped. What did you say, Dutch Courage earlier? 
Yeah, you know, well, it's, it was synonymous in those days, much prior to cocaine, that was the drug of choice for musicians, was alcohol. A good night out, as it were, and that left when you were local until you became professional. It was years later that I would, if I needed to, you know, clean up my system, I, I'm very fortunate that I can stop and start. I love my wine, I love my whiskies. But I know that I have to be careful if, because there's such a vanity uh, foundation in our industry. I don't want to be going on there, slide it in, like with love handles tripping over, you know, <laughs> my stand or whatever. So I take what I do serious from top to bottom, and I mean that. <laughs> but uh, Richie goes, okay, what time is it? And it was like 7.20. He said, this is what time we're going on tomorrow. So, and that was it in his mind. That was it. So... The ABC people were running a show like it was two immense stages on a railway line. So they were running it like a TV show. The moment one act finished, they could just roll over, you know, while that gears and to where all the cameras were and Black Sabbath comes on, you know, and the audience, oh, my God, oh, my God. And getting com completely stoned, as you can imagine, baked in the California sun and baked in, you know, nature's gifts. So we go in there and it's before sunset. It's still light when we were supposed to go on. So Richie says, well, I'm not going on. <laughs> and was the managers were there, everybody's begging him. And he's going, no, he's got he's sitting there, I'll never forget, he's just sitting there, he's got his fender strat, wide strat, and he's just sort of doing scales and loosening his fingers. And, and he's going, no, absolutely not. The director walks in and threatens that we will never work in America again. Do you know who ABC is? I will make sure you never work in this country again. So this was like serious stuff. We had uh, a guy who's still in my life called Ozzy Hoppy, a German guy, who was our tour manager. The guy said, right, I'm pulling the plug. And Ozzy Hoppy ran from the dressing room area up this ridiculous set of stairs to, to get to the high stage and grabbed the microphone seconds before the director to say, you want to see Deep Purple? And 400 <laughs> just went. So, and he turned around like that. We give him 10 grand, you know, um, because it could have been really nasty. And of course, it continued getting nasty. The cameraman was complaining to Richie about being out of frame, which is why Richie slammed the camera. And it became rock and roll history, the you know guitar players killing the camera. It was brilliant. Because all the bands had been playing to the cameras, and we just went, boom, done. Did the lights ever go on for Richie? Oh, but they came on. Yeah, we came on at the time we were supposed to. Yeah, he absolutely stuck to his guns with incredible pressure from everybody to, to... He says, no, this is not what I agreed to. It was really cool. Are you all smiling? You look fucking great from here. Really good. So I was listening back to the Burn album, and 
One of the songs that really just jumped out, you know, with Fresh Ears was Mistreated, where it's the one song on the album that you sang entirely by yourself. And I read that it took you a while to get the vocal right because you didn't like the first take. It's a seven and a half minute song. You're so super young. Yeah, I don't think uh, it's really... I think that's one of the just early passes. It's guttural. It's not really singing. It's just beast-like. In those days, I could dig out all kinds of management bullshit that really upset me, pissed me off in order to fuel the passion of presenting that kind of song. But it wasn't necessarily a struggle. That song came from, oh my God, I remember, I was the new boy, if you remember. We're rehearsing in the crypt of a private castle called Clearwell Castle in the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire. And I'm down in there before anybody else and I see Richie's guitar and I could play a little bit of guitar and I went over, there's nobody around, and I pick up his guitar and I'm, I start playing this, this little song I have in F sharp minor, wondering whether I have the balls to present, because Richie and I had written most of the stuff. And then suddenly my spidey sense goes, and I turn around and Richie's leading me in the doorway, watching me. I went, oh my God, you know. I said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He said, no, he said, that's really good. He said, what are you playing? And I said, oh, blah, 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 just something in our take. And he goes, yeah, have a look at that. And that's when we started to create that immense guitar riff. At the end, Glenn Hughes and I, who were still learning about each other, Glenn is just my soul brother and an extraordinarily gifted For those who don't know, Glenn was the bass player. Glenn Hughes, yeah. Yeah. He's now, you know, he's still kicking ass. Beautiful. We put 16 voices, the two of us, on the outro of Mistreated, you know, it sounded, we'd go into the control wow. room and turn the lights off and just turn this thing on. It was, Peter, it was unbelievable. This is me. I've never heard myself properly in the studio. Martin Birch just was such a... a Martin Birch was the producer, yeah. Yeah, oh, he took care of me. I love and treasure everything. Well, you had had an amazing relationship with Martin Birch all the way through the 1987 Whitesnake album. Yeah. Till Geffen, yeah. Um, And Martin passed away last year, unfortunately. Yes. But you guys had an incredible run that went on for over a decade. Listening back to Burn, I mean, it's so undeniably Deep Purple, even though you're new in the band, you hear Richie being Richie, you hear John Lord being John Lord. Did you know at the time that you were recording it that it was a great album? Well, I had no, I'd never done it before. There's no question that these musicians, I've always worked, you know, from say 17 or whatever with really accomplished musicians, really good players. But it was so noticeable how extraordinarily amazing these guys were. You know, John and and Richie, both classically trained. Ian Pace influenced, entirely unique, influenced by Max Roach and all the Buddy Rich, all, you know, all the big band players. Glenn Hughes and I bringing, I brought more blues and soul, he brought soul and funk. I mean, I gotta tell you, 
The albums I was playing when I joined Deep Purple and we were in the Guinness Book of Records as the loudest band in the world. My most played albums was There's a Riot Going On, Sly and the Family Stone, Donny Hathaway Live, Stevie Wonder Music From My Mind. You know, I was familiar with Deep Purple's In Rock, but at my audition, Richie said, well, do you want to do any of our songs? And I only knew kind of their singles. And I went, well, um, I, I could probably try Strange Kind of Woman. And he went, oh, okay. So we started playing it, and I did it the way I, you know, just, I had no idea. And he went, and he came over to me. And Richie giving compliments is a big deal, Peter. And he came over and said, that's how I heard it when I wrote it. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that is a compliment. I mean, it's funny that you mention the soul and funk influence that you had listening to Sly and Stevie and Donnie, because the Stormbringer album... People have said that the band went in more of a soulful funk direction on the second album you made in 74, Stormbringer, mm. and that ultimately led to Richie leaving the band because he didn't feel like it was the Deep Purple that he started. Is that right? Well, I think you, you're looking at Richie really was in an unenviable scenario. He was the primary composer of the big guitar riff stuff. You know, I would have to sit with John Lord and work on stuff and go, instead of looking at riffs on the organ, let's look at chord stuff like Chest Fever with a band. I heard it through the grapevine, which basically led us to Might Just Take Your Life, which was not but the a B3. Richie <laughs> song. Yeah, yeah. Right. But Richie was a big shot. If he didn't want to do something, we wouldn't do it. He'd laid down the law after the first record they did with Gillen and Glover, that concerto for group and orchestra. Wherever they went, and they were a great rock band, wherever they went, the promoters were saying, well, where's the orchestra? And Richie said, that's it. If we don't do a rock album, I'm out of here. And they <laughs> made an album, which I don't think created much excitement over here, but in Europe, Deep Purple in rock, where they emulated the Mount Rushmore. Yeah, it was a big record here, too. Yeah, oh, oh, but it was huge. The thing that I enjoyed, I was such a Hendrix fan, Richie's playing and riffs of a lot of those songs were very manic depression, you know, that that kind of stuff. So, and that was really then, you know, then I was into my, you know, my stuff, my uh, Stevie Wonder, Little Feet. The good stuff. Yes. When, when Richie left the band, then you and the guys, you know, had to say, all right, is it Deep Purple without Richie Blackmore? And if it is, who's going to replace him? And you found a guy in the States, right? Well, I was very uncomfortable about calling it Deep Purple because Deep Purple came from Richie Blackmore's grandmother's favorite song. <laughs> In the Deep Purple Night. Da, 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 da. That was his grandma's favorite song. So, wow. you know, all the power and strength and muscular stuff. It's his grandma's favorite song. But I said, why don't we just call it Purple? I thought that'd be great. Just Purple. And in deference, Richie was a founder member, he was a huge star. Management absolutely, and record companies absolutely stepped on it. I had three names. Jeff Beck, who I still think is a giant, extraterrestrial. Rory Gallagher, the Irish guitar player also recently lost. And Tommy Bolin. And I'd only said Tommy Bolin because I was insanely listening to Billy Cobham's Spectrum album. Yep. Alphonse moves on Mind Transplant. I didn't know the James Gang after Joey Walsh, Funk 49, Funk yep. 48. But that was, you know, what really, it's so funny. I'm standing with Tommy Bolden, God rest his soul, at some party. And so we got Spectrums playing. I'm going, oh, man, I love that lick. And he goes, 
that's Jan, <laughs> Jan Hammer. And I oh, went, wow. oh, because oh. Jan had just started playing this uh, synthesizer, that wow. the wheel that you could actually bend and vibrate like a guitar player. And, you know, when you listen to him and Jeff playing, it's very difficult on the, the Jeff Beck, Jan Hammer record. It's hard at times to tell which is which. And of wow. course, in the older days, I mean, I'm going, oh, I love that lick. He goes, Jan. Quick while you're ahead, baby. You know? Tommy, Tommy was so young when he joined Deep Purple. Yeah, well, we looked everywhere. I didn't know whether he was African-American, 60-year-old session guy. I just heard great guitar playing. So by the time we found him, he was living down the road from me in Malibu. It's incredible. Small world. Uh, he was in financial dire straits. All his guitars were in hock. You know, he had to get one out of hock to come down for the audition. So um, we needed the gig. We got on very, very well. It was so sad that... You know, it was, it, that was when drugs really, really came into to the forefront. This is the mid-70s you're talking about. Come Taste the Band, the album that you made with Tommy was 75, and then Tommy died a year later, right? Well, I don't know whether it was a year later. We, it wasn't long after. It was so sad for me to see because... He was so young. He was very young and extraordinarily gifted. I would go over to the studio and he was making the teaser album. And what's the next one? Private Eyes. Both consistently played. Uh, they don't really sound great, but the content is, is extraordinary. And, you know, and I'd rather reflect uh, lovingly on my memories, respectfully. But at times it was extraordinarily challenging because I was writing music with him. I was the primary yeah. writer at that time. Yeah, for sure. So you ended up dissolving Deep Purple after the Come Taste the Band album. You know, what's interesting now is if you go on Spotify and you look at Deep Purple's 10 most played songs, of course, there's Smoke on the Water, which predated you, but there's also Soldier of Fortune and also Burn. And, yeah. you know, the music that you made with them is as indelibly linked to the history of Deep Purple as anything else that they've done. Well, interestingly, and being respectful of my age, not my enthusiasm or spirit, about 2014, 2015... No, it's actually, it was 2012. I got a call from John Lord, who said I've been uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is like horrifying to hear. He said, I'm going to kick this, Davey. He says, will you do something purple related with me? I said, John, I'm there for you. Go and kick that thing. And I knew it was, you know, it's one of the most aggressive cancers. And of course, sadly, we lost him. So... You know, I was of an age where I was experiencing lots of loss, not only professionally, but privately. And I had this eye-opening thing going, oh my, because I'm, I'm a meditator every day. And I had this thing, I don't want to hear about another person that we've lost. You know, coming into this age cycle where people are dropping like flies, you know, with any unresolved issues. So I reached out to a lot of people I hadn't been in touch with for 40 years, 30 years or whatever musicians I'd worked with to bury the hatchet or just to tell them I love you and I appreciate what you brought to my journey. And one of those was Richie. And Richie and I had had literally 30 years, not necessarily rivalry, but unpleasantries exchanged in interviews. I had his wife's email and I just, you know, introduced myself very respectfully and said, I share your loss, you know, and completely. I send my true condolences. Um, I hope one day we can meet or 
speak again, etc., etc. Uh, I'm so sorry too, because he formed Deep Purple with John, you know. And Cindy said to me, when, after John had asked me, John Lord, I started listening. I don't go back that far to listen to my work. It's interesting. I don't. It was kind of that was then. And I started to listen to it. I was going, oh, my God, I'm like 21 or 22 years old here. And I'm going, I'd love to redo this and do it properly. I could hear my naivety in the stuff and think, oh, I would have sang that different. One of those things. And then when we lost John and, and all this, my wife and I were out for dinner and I said, oh man, I've done all of this work, rearranging certain songs and like Sail Away, I made an acoustic style song, which would have been super for uh, Richie's wife and I for the music he's playing now, this more Renaissance, Blackmore's Night. And I said, after all this work, and she said, well, why don't you do your own tribute album, do your favorite songs? You're always saying, oh, I wish you'd done this. Or, and I went, oh. And then I thought, this will be a great retirement album. <laughs> really? Remember my co-producer, Michael? A way to, this is how I came in. This is how, <laughs> this is how I, I go out. <laughs> completion, you know, completion. So we did the Purple album, and Mark and I are going to working on putting this beautiful box set together for... Mark, Mark the, Pinkus from Rhino. Mark Pinkus, yeah. Right. For 2023 is the 50th anniversary of my joining Deep Purple. DVD in concert, you know, all kinds of accoutrement that, that we right. know for now with our box sets. So I did it really under the cloak of darkness. Uh, Joel Hoekstra and the incendiary Joel Hoekstra joined us, so. From Night Ranger, right? Well, yes, an mm -hmm. uh, extraordinarily gifted player. And he came in and the guys did us proud, you know, uh, my, picked my favorite songs. And then we went out on the Purple Tour, which was just extraordinary. And that led to the live album. Yeah, well, I was introducing people, younger people. I, I'm, I play to like four generations now, Peter, you know, from Deep Purple, who are my age, if not older, who stagger into my shows now and bring their grandchildren or great-grandchildren. It's quite amazing to look out, particularly in Europe, where there's no limit on bringing people because of an alcohol license or whatever. So to see little kids sit singing Here I Go Again or Is This Love sitting on their mama down shoulders is extraordinary, next to a couple of bald guys, is an <laughs> extraordinary humbling thing for me to think that, that my music's been the backdrop for so many so many lives. Well, yeah. it's it's a testament to the strength of the music, David, yeah. that you've created going on 50 years now. You you mentioned 2023 as the Whitesnake uh, Purple album in conjunction with Rhino will be deluxe. Yeah. But 2023 is also going to be the 30th anniversary of Coverdale Page. Well, um, we're still hoping, hoping to do a deal with you chaps. Uh, <laughs> it's a moment in time where it's kind of crickets. <laughs> so but I'm going to move ahead with the project anyway, because uh, I can afford it, and to move forward. But I'm, I'm hoping, well, I really would like to do this deal with, uh, with Rhino. Uh, it's a team. Well, that that record that record is so good, the Coverdale well, Page record, and it's a shame well, that it's not easily accessible now. That, well, uh, this new generation. I got it I'm, back last year from Universal, so it's there. We have uh, we lost the mass analog tapes in a fire, although nobody knows that. Uh, back in the Valley in two thousand, whatever that eight was, it. Um, the big universal fire. The yeah. universal fire, yeah. Right. So there were some of our master tapes went up, analog tapes, you know, but we have a digital transfer 
and which I've done with all all my analog albums. So they're safe now from deterioration and we can remix with software that makes it warm as opposed to too digi, you know? Well, that, that record is so good. Are you still in touch with Jimmy? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what I've proposed to Jimmy to make it really interesting, what we do with our box sets, with the White Snake stuff, is we'll do a remix of the album because all of my records are of a time, Peter. So engineers and, and, and mastering or something, it's a time capsule of that time. And, and way, the way quality is going now with digital listening, most people listening on their telephones or, you know, digital quality in AirPods, a lot of those, they sound woolly compared to, to or FM. You know, when you're doing, you hear Royal Blood track, you know, followed by a Deep Purple track, the Royal Blood track kicks ass like 50% louder. What I'm doing, it's the same house, but what I'm doing is rearranging the furniture that have been bringing up to yeah. date. So then we have the original album remastered by Scott Hull at Master Disc, who's our part of our amazing creative team that we thank God we've got at this time. And his mastering is, it was originally mastered by the George Marino, extraordinary, beautiful man, great soul and super guy, uh, super uh, mastering. Uh, but even that has dated it a little, you know, yeah. from that time. So what I've proposed to Jimmy, to him, that he does a Jimmy Page mix. The Coverdale Page album is a Coverdale Page mix, as it exists. And I'm going to do a remix, the David Coverdale remix, with Chris Collier, who's our fabulous mixing guy. And I've recommended to Jimmy to do use his favorite mixing guy to do the Jimmy Page mix and put whatever order songs that, you know, he favors in, you know, his side of the story. What a great idea. Like, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear that. I'm sure everybody who's a fan of, of yours and of his would love to hear yeah. that as well. And, it's, and we've got a bunch of unreleased stuff, too, which we have to mix. And wow. it's, it's a very exciting thing. So, yes, I do hope more than uh, going anywhere else is to, uh, for us to come to an arrangement with, uh, with Rhino. It would be lovely. Good. Well, I will cross my fingers for that. I, I went back and I was listening to the Coverdale Page album. You know, how good are those riffs of his and Take Me For A Little While? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We maintain a fabulous, loving, and res uh, mutually respectful relationship. And I do believe at that time in our lives, we got the best out of each other. The best that we could. Tickled it out, stroked it out, kicked it out. For the first time in any project, I wanted the lyrics to reflect my co my partner's this Coverdale page 5050 scenario to reflect his life too not just my journal not just my journey right. not just my experience and what was fascinating is when Jimmy and I spent more and more time together was the the comparisons that we had in our lives in our mm. private lives as well as professional we both experienced great love and great loss you know, so it does kind of take me for a little while is out of respect for like your Tommy Bolins, your John Bonham, you know, those. It's right. that coming out of the sadness. Take me out of the sadness for a little while. Why don't you take me for a little while? Sing the songs you know will make me smile. Why don't you take
Did you expect that album to be a one-off project? No. I wrote a bunch of songs to do. Jimmy had to change a lot of his private life at that time and the people who were representing him. I said, I've got to get my life back. I loved working with Jimmy. We did three years, I think. Jimmy's a, a, a doll, but the people around him, it was very hard for me to, to work with. They just didn't get it. So basically, I groomed him for Page Plant. So. Right, right. <laughs> but no, it's just the most glorious thing because he was such a hero of mine from the Yardbirds and, you know, reading of that name in uh, Rave Magazine or Melody Maker about him playing on the Kinks record, You Really Got Me, one of my favorite records in all, you know, all of these things. When we were in Canada doing the basic tracking, I bought this nine CD box set, marvelous, of British pop music of the 60s. And right? he's playing on every single track, Well, right? I had, in my hotel room, I had a five disc, I think it was, Sony CD player. So I'd load them up and hit shuffle and we'd open the bottle and just sit back and it'll go, that's me. <laughs> and it's mind-blowing all and, and pop you know strict pop music oh that's jonesy you know a and lot then, of people oh, don't realize that I that before good. led zeppelin he was such a he was such a serious studio player he played on all those oh records my God, from the age of 14 and jonesy was an amazing uh producer arranger he did like lulu the boat boat that i row if you get this, he the first actual Zeppelin anybody heard was Donovan. Jimmy did a lot of sessions for Mickey Mouse, the producer. And Donovan, he played on a bunch of that stuff. Donovan needed some, some kind of out there stuff for Hurdy Gurdy Man. And that's the, while they were recording the first Zeppelin, but the first time anybody in the world heard what Zeppelin's rhythm section and guitar was going to sound like was fucking Donovan. Songs of love. Then, when the herdy gurdy man came singing songs Let's go back. We were talking about how Deep Purple dissolved after the Come Taste the Band record. Yeah. And you did a couple of solo albums. Then you formed Whitesnake in 1978. So cool. what was it like deciding, okay, you know, post Deep Purple, post a couple of David Coverdale solo albums, I want to form a band? Uriah Heep approached me. I jammed with him with no intention, really, to join. Absolutely. Just lovely guys, but it was just... It was too close to what I'd been doing. I got a phone call. Would I be interested in forming a band with Jeff Beck? Are you kidding? Jeff Beck, Willie Weeks on bass, Andy Newmark on drums, Cat Stevens, musical producer, the keyboard player Jean Roussel. And of course, Jeff, I'm going, are you serious? But sadly, the project never connected. Black Sabbath, Tony Iommi and I talked. Once again, I love him dearly. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do. So the Deep Purple management was very unsupportive of both Glenn Hughes and I. They looked upon us as the new boys. So most of the money was put into, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow was already generating significantly. John and Ian formed a group with a beautiful soul called Tony Ashton, which cost an awful lot of money and sadly no returns. And I was given, I think Glenn the same, 10, 10 grand to do an album. So, I mean, finding session musicians, 
you know, to, to do me a deal was a big deal. I had Simon Phillip, uh, one of the biggest session guys now in, in the US. He came to me as a drummer at 16 years old. Extraordinary. Couldn't even drink. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a box of Smarties. There you go, son. Whitesnake was actually formed to promote the second solo album, Northwinds, to do a handful. At this time, punk music was on the cover of every music weekly so I thought, oh, my God, to save face, I'll do a Back to the Roots tour, you know, just little clubs. And there were more people outside of these clubs than inside asking me, like, what? Because I was very accessible getting out of a car and going through a crowd into a small club. What are you playing these venues for? You know, and there was more people outside than in. So I'm going, well, maybe the newspapers aren't right. So next time I took a risk on bigger venues, sold them out and just built up into 15,000, 20,000 seaters, you know, with the early snakes. You brought in, you talk about the early snakes, you brought in Bernie and, and Mickey on guitar, and you made the first White Snake album. Was that Snakebite? No, that was a thing that management put together. The first thing we recorded was an EP, because right. we couldn't get a deal. When we played Newcastle City Hall, the EMI A&R guy, a guy called Robbie Dennis, had all of these White Snake EPs in the trunk of his car, driving up and standing outside Newcastle City Hall, selling them. They're like <laughs> collector's items for 600 pounds. <laughs> but the first album we did, I'd already had a bunch of song ideas. I've refreshed them out with Mickey and Bernie. And we made the album and mixed in 10 days, the Trouble album. Mm -hmm. Now, during that, I'd had a guy called Pete Solly, used to be from Procol Harum, of course. on keyboards. And he was in as a session, and it was, it was costing more than I could afford. And it's too long a story, but John and I had occasion to come together for a legal issue in a hotel room at the London Hilton, which was declared a court of California. So we're in there making our depositions or whatever, and he slips me a bit of paper that when I look at it, he goes, Davey, can I come out and play? Wow. So I called him. I'm putting this imaginary paper back in my pocket here. <laughs> um, so I said to the guys, John Lord wants to come down. You know, John had this customized, huge B3, unique sounding, et cetera, et cetera. So it filled this tiny studio that we were recording in, in Denmark Street in London, under a hairdresser's called Eric's. <laughs> anyway, to fill the place up, the control room is above this room, and when John, John's left hand was an immense part of the sonic identity of Deep Purple. It just, the earth shook when that left hand hit the, the hammer, and the whole room shook. Mickey Moody went, oh my God, and, and stopped smoking, like handshaking, what the hell, thinking it was an earthquake. And I'm going, oh God, this is amazing. This is amazing. So John was in at a modest economic scenario because, as I say, there was nothing to be shared other than the albums, the percentages. So just before we released the Love Hunter album, Ian Pace had said, do you think David would consider having me in there? So to, wow. to, out, to the outside world, it looked like Coverdale's <laughs> master plan. <laughs> Deep Purple reunion, yeah. yeah. Well, under Coverdale's flag, you know? <laughs> it was just how it unfolded. And Ready and Willing, which produced the first significant hit, a song called Fool for Your Loving, which was written specifically for B.B. King yep. when he was working with the Crusaders. That, to me, 
as much as I love the earlier songs and stuff, but the sound, the dynamic of White Snake began with Ready and Willing. What I love about Fool for Your Loving, you talk about your real passion and real experience being inspired by the blues and, and R&B. I mean, the first lyric in Fool for Your Loving is an Albert King lyric. I was born under a bad sign. Well, it's a lot of blues songs, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Originally, I was born under a pub sign. But, I... <laughs> but don't, so, remember, don't forget that this was for BB. This song was... Right. Uh, Interestingly, Bernie Marsden had been asked by Sounds magazine as a young white blues player to interview B.B. King, which was great because he was like one of our heroes. And B.B. said to him, why don't you write me a song? Why don't you guys write me a song? And that was when Fool for Your Loving started. And Martin Birch and I were sitting there and going, uh, I think we better hang on to this. <laughs> and that was the first kind of significant hit. I think we went top 40 in the U.S. Don't come running to me, I know I'm doing all I can A hard-loving woman like you just makes a hard-loving man So I can say it to you, babe, I'll be a fool for your loving no more A fool for your loving no more I'm so tired of trying, I always end up crying Fool for your loving no more I remember as a kid hearing that on the radio in America, yeah. for sure. I mean, there's definitely, even going back to the Ready and Willing album, Beyond Fool for Your Loving, you know, on a song like Love Man, where you're name-checking, I'm your hoochie-coochie man. I mean, there, yeah, there's, yeah. there's so much of the blues in yeah. your DNA as to who you are that people may not remember, you know, or may not know. Well, the scenario is, if you listen to anything, uh, like my most recent studio album, Flesh and Blood, there's a song called Always and Forever. You take the guitars down, the drums down, stick strings where the harmony guitars are, it's a Motown song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, this is the, the way Armani tailors his suits. This is how Whitesnake <laughs> tailored to get the best out of the musicians to get the best out of the music. You know, the musicians are encouraged to spread their wings. It's as much about getting that performance from them. And my performance is always related to some emotive aspect, you know, so I maintain the fact that I'm a more blue soul singer with a little bit of rock and and the lyrics that you're writing were all coming from a personal place. Fool for Your Lovin' mm-hmm. was written about a divorce you were going through, right? And Don't Break My Heart Again, both of them. Fool for Your Lovin' was telling you the marriage was in trouble, and Don't Break My Heart Again was the final nail. Time again, I sing your song. You've been quoted as saying that your marital trouble was incredible fuel for the songs yeah. that you were writing. Yeah. Well, you know, there's the song, the song called Saccharide, which I can't wait for people to hear, which is kind of about my second divorce, and it pulls no punches whatsoever. So we talk about Ready and Willing. Yeah. That 
was a big hit, led to Come and Get It, which was also a big hit in the UK, which led to Saints and Sinners. Now we're into the early 80s. And, you know, now some of these songs are being, I, I guess, mentally kind of filed away by Geffen in the U.S. Like, one day we're going to re-record these songs. It's interesting that on the Saints and Sinners album is where you originally recorded Here I Go Again with slightly different lyrics and yeah. slightly different arrangements and, and Crying in the Rain, which both of those songs were ultimately re-recorded for the 87 album. What was that like? Obviously, when Geffen and Kolodner and the whole Geffen U.S. crew decided that they were going to team up with you and they had a vision and the vision didn't include Martin Birch, but it did include some of these songs. What was yeah. that like for you? Were you, were you you're, well, you're somebody who you say you don't like to look back. Well, no, reflection is one way you, you look just to see how far you've come. <laughs> really in any aspect of your life. But I was definitely not keen on that idea. But long story short, I wrote both Here I Go Again and Crying in the Rain, literally about the breakdown of my first marriage, whilst I would go on exotic holidays, being a tax exile, if you'll excuse the expression, and compile all my bits and pieces of the musical jigsaw, you know, and this one was the Algarve uh, in Portugal. And sadly, my first wife and I were in separate rooms in this villa that I'd rented. But that's where, you know, the element of Crying in the Rain and Here I Go Again are entirely about the breakdown of the first marriage. They're now like huge rock anthems around the world. Everybody has a Here I Go Again story of what they experienced when they heard that song and how much it assisted them through a particular crisis so they didn't know they were on their own, if that makes sense. Right. So the Sense and Sinners album was my least favorite because I never had a full complement of musicians. We'd achieved a certain status of success. You know, it just, it stopped inspiring people and motivating people for me. And my fire was still burning. Uh, I remember uh, Ian Pay saying to me, David, you know, we can't all live rock and roll 24 hours a day. And I thought, those are the people I need because I do. Otherwise, we're, we have a different vision of what this is. When did the Geffen team jump in? Was that before Slide It In? Yeah, Slide It In was my first Geffen record, and there was no suggestion on any level of me re-recording anything. Uh, all of those songs are fresh, new, Loving No Strangers, Slide It In, Slow and Easy. And that was the next step for me, that seeing Whitesnake more electrified, playing with more Notice Me musicians. Like John Sykes and Neil Murray, is that who you're talking about? That kind of thing, yeah. I play Notice Me music. I'm not going to, you know, sit in the corner going, hello, how are you? You know, <laughs> I'm out there. Listen, I fucking bust my ass for this. You're going to listen and watch, you know? I also want it not just by appearance, but by statement in the power. I, you know, I loved how Hendrix got more electrified and more organic on the cry for love 
album, I think that was posthumously released. But these were all organic elements that I was putting in my blender. And I didn't think that I had the musicians. I needed to electrify Whitesnake more. Big, muscular, sexy riffs. You know, statement stuff. Moving from theatres to arenas is a much bigger projection. You know, some people can do it and some people can't, you know. You've got to own what you fucking do, you know. Well, it worked, obviously. I mean, t- mm. talk about what Martin did and then Kolodner comes in and brings in Keith Olsen. Or, or initially, he brought in Eddie Kramer, right? Initially, yeah. Uh, and I was very excited about that because the Hendrix producer, whatever, that excitement turned rather quickly to... <laughs> Um, and the circumstance was it was not a happy marriage and stopping Cozy Powell, good rest his soul, from taking him out. You know, the heartbreak about this, Peter, is 50% of the band that made that record with me have passed. You know, it's just when we remixed that, it was as if they were alive in here. Right. It, the performances and the speaking between tracks and the laughing and joking. Slow and Easy was recorded at four o'clock in the morning after a pub crawl through Munich. But, you know, I fired a Kramer, excuse me, uh, let him go and called Martin and said, look, I'm so sorry. Come, please come and rescue my boat. So he came over and we were very close. And he said we would, I think, DHLing in those days, uh, mixes to Geffen and not hearing anything back. Crickets. Never a good sign. Well, we sat and talked and and he said they're going to want to remix this. And I'm going, well, this is going to see the light of day because this is our mix. And that's why there are two mixes. There's the North American mix and the European or the rest of the world mix, which is Martin's and mine. Right. So Keith was given the instructions the first time I'd worked with him. And I brought John Sykes in and brought Neil Murray back. And I said, part of this, my agreement to let you remix is that my new guitar player you know, we do the new overdubs and stuff. And Neil's an extraordinarily accomplished musician, so I knew there was going to be no wasting time. John, I wasn't so sure how he was going to be in the studio. But when I recently remixed that, I was so disappointed that there wasn't more John Sykes on there. Right. So we kind of pulled elements from his other stuff to add to make, you know, his presence more felt and turned up guitars and things. You know, it was very much an 84 mix, 1984 mix. So, you know, the stuff works. You don't hear the kind of muscular stuff that you got on the 87 album. Right, right. He'd had a world tour under his belt. He was ultra confident, beautiful looking guy. Yeah, for those who don't know, John Sykes had a great pedigree coming into Whitesnake, having played with Phil Lynott and Thin Lizzy. Well, and, that's where I, I found him. Yeah. Lizzie, sadly, was infolding. I loved Phil dearly, but it, it wasn't going well. And I took them on a European big uh, stadium tour uh, to check out their most recent guitarist. And John, just huge fan, was in, totally in love with Phil. And as you know, we lost Phil. 
And Brian Downey was saying, you know, go, go, go with him, please go, John, you know. And eventually, you know, we got together and, and basically our getting to know each other was in a villa in the south of France, of France I'd rented from a friend. And, you know, all of the demos we recently put on a box set, Evolutions, you can hear the first time that John heard a particular song. I was writing Is This Love for Tina Turner as uh, <laughs> at EMI's request. And Geffen went, no, 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 you're keeping this. Uh, and very great prescience. Well, it's um, funny that both Fool for Your Love and written for B.B. King and Is This Love written for Tina Turner. Yeah. And thankfully for Whitesnake fans, uh, neither yeah. of them got a chance to record them. Well, it's actually, I would, I, you know, still listen to my uh, BB any time of day or night. He was working with, if you hear that song in your mind's ear of when he was working with a crusader with Pops Blackwell on bass, rather than the big guitar, you know, it's totally, I'm a fool for your love and no more BB King, you know, and is this love? I would love Tina to have, she's a goddess to me. I would have loved to have heard her sing that song, a goddess. Is this love that I'm feeling? So back to John Sykes, you yeah. and John wrote the majority of the self-titled 87 album together. Yeah. So that was, you know, talk about the right chemistry at the right time. That album ended up being the biggest album on the planet. Whatever competition there was between Whitesnake, Posty Purple, and, and Rainbow, Richie Blackmore, Posty Purple, forget yeah. about it. That 1987 yeah. album, eight times platinum in the U.S. The re-record of Here I Go Again went number one. Is It Love went number two on the Hot 100. And here I go again on my own. So let's talk about the 87 album some more, just because it was so massive. What did it feel like when this album just, you know, was a rocket ship and became the biggest album in the world? Well, it was an amazing experience because I was working literally 24-7 doing promo. I'd never experienced this like at any time in my entire career, as successful as we were with Deep Purple. We were in, at that time regarded as an underground band because it wasn't uh, in the daily newspapers. You know, we were really, that in those days, it was called underground music. It wasn't overground, it wasn't pop, you know? But this was an amalgam of incredibly powerful riff music with melodies and had all the elements that I adore. But the circumstances, it's that lightning in a bottle scenario. I hadn't gone in to make a multi-platinum album. I was delighted with what we achieved with Slide It In. We'd set up the groundswell for what was coming at radio. And in the interim, MTV entered the picture. Right. 
Right. You know, so you had how important how important was MTV? Immense. Well, they they got to know it themselves and they became sort of eight themselves. Uh, You know, when I was working with Jimmy, they'd say, well, we want this and we want that. And that'd be passed to us. And it was difficult enough for me to even tell Jimmy we need to make promo videos. They make a vast difference in terms of people's awareness of the the album. He was very reluctant to... uh, To, to go the MTV route. Then yeah. how ironic is it that Page and Plant did an MTV Unplugged record a year later? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, the songs were the big deal for me. That's the scenario. Everything contributed to the reservoir of the success that it was in. The, the music, obviously, radio loved immediately. And uh, MTV picked us as Still of the Night, as Hip Clip of the Week, over Love Removal Machine by the Cult. There you go. Cult. There you go. Uh, so that meant we had 18 views. I'm touring the world promoting this at the time. We have 18 views a day or something, which was immense wow. at the time because it was like an almost seven-minute song. You know, Geffen had done an edit, which thankfully FM Radio just ignored. MTV became the world's biggest radio station. I'd go everywhere in the world, nine times out of ten, I'd walk in, the TV would be on, and it wasn't CNN, it was, that was Japan. You know, but you know, endless repeats, loops of Larry... Uh, what King, was Larry King. Yeah, Larry King, endless loops for your jet, you know, Japanese jet lag. Oh, Larry, I love you. Everywhere I went, you, the TV would be on when you walked in, and MTV, and, and probably seven times out of ten, Tawny was doing handstands, cartwheels between a pair of jags, you know. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the lyric at all, but it was just, you know. Well, it just talk talk about the, the right thing at the right time. It just really defined, you know, that. It's extraordinary, yeah, that but place the substance of the music was there. That's the thing. hundred percent. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Still of the Night. I work with an incredible... A rock band at Atlantic uh, called Hailstorm, and we do oh, cover is albums. Is that Lizzie? Lizzie That's Lizzie Hale. Hale. Yeah, and I suggested to her a couple of years ago that she cover "Still of the Night," and she killed it. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah, killed yeah. it. Yeah, I've got a lot of her uh, supporters come on my social media. You know, that uh, yeah, she's fabulous. I'd love to say hi sometime. Yeah, no, for sure. I will send her your regards. So the album becomes the biggest album on the planet, and then you have to follow it up, and you make Slip of the Tongue in 89. Yeah. Geffen wants to repeat the success of Here I Go Again, so they give you a fool for your loving, do it again. You know, it seems like they were just trying a little too hard. Oh, I got to tell you, Peter, The I had to call my band. What had happened, I was at the record plant in uh, L.A., and, you know, we were still mixing. And my manager, who I love, got run and sadly lost in 2017, Howard Kaufman, the best of the best, the president of, of Geffen Records, the head of radio, frontline management, AK, HK management's head of radio promo and stuff. All these people came down whom I truly respected and said, we really feel that fulfilled. Now, number one, I didn't want to re-record it. But they took me in, in, you know, into a room and said, we really feel that should be the first single. Now, I designed what I felt was a 21st century blues kind of band for, for Judgment Day. That was what I thought should be the first one out of the box, this kind of bleak. It's the same set that we used on the Full Feel Loving video, but that was actually a design I'd made for Judgment Day. And I had to call the band and say... It's going to be full for your loving. 
oh, to a man, Tommy, Rudy, Steve, Adrian, oh, no, 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 you know. Everyone just so believed. And I think it was the biggest mistake, me not, not doing a Richie and saying no. Right. Not doing it. You know, but there you go. The era, you know, what's called the MTV era or the hairband era or whatever you want to call it. I certainly don't call it the hairband thing, which I think <laughs> is derisory. So. Well, speaking of that, You've been quoted about the excesses of that era where you said yeah. it got louder and louder. And so did I to the point now where I have to dress up like a girly man and it's all becoming a bit boring. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we started out, it became a joke. I've just been talking to my wife about this because she's the, the designer we worked with in those days was a girl, Fleur. And she said, oh, we've got to get some flamboyant stuff going there. I'd, had, I'd, I'd gone to get some highlights in my hair. I just talked about this. It's amazing because this woman who did me, who turned me blonde, Peter, lives down the street from this new house we've got in Malibu. Go figure, 40 years later or something. <laughs> so the night before, uh, the director, super guy, Marty Kalner, super, super guy, his wife is this fantastic hairdresser called Elisa, Israeli Sabra, like Gal Gadot, you know, just beautiful. David, you look gorgeous. Oh, my God. <laughs> Do whatever you want. Cut it all off. Um, <laughs> So the night before the still of the night shoot, I go into Elisa, uh, Elisa and Batia's hairdressing thing on, on Santa Monica Boulevard near the Mondrian Hotel. And she's put up, we're chatting away. She's just utterly adorable and I'm covered in foils and, and I have no experience in this. So when she takes these foils out, I am like, this is late Friday afternoon. Oh my God, you gotta turn me back. I'm blonde, that's not me, you know? And she goes, David, David, it's a California, uh, it's a uh, chemical rinse. If I do it again, it's going to, your hair could fall out. Oh, God. And I'm doing <laughs> shooting a video in eight hours, you know. So at those days, I was really the man with a tan. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going, oh, Christ almighty, what am I, because, you know. So I, I, the white jag, the famous white jag, I drive back to the uh, Mondrian Hotel and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm cooked, I'm done, you know. <laughs> I get out and all the valets, I lived there, so I knew all the valets. I went, oh my God, David, you look amazing. I'm going, oh, get out of here. David, wherever I went in the hotel, I was going straight to the bar. It was like, oh my God, you look fantastic. And all this, I'm going, they kind of paid them all, you know. <laughs> so I go into the bar, the woman behind the bar goes, oh my God, David, you look drool, you look fantastic, you know. So when I look back at the video now, it's nowhere near as blonde as I was with Pagey, for God's sake, you know. But it was fascinating because I was really nervous. Uh, did you know the story that Geffen tried to pull the plug on those that first video? No. Okay, so I had a private line in my suite at the, the Mondrian. I knew the owners and management very, very well, and they were very accommodating to me. And I get a phone call at 6 o'clock in the morning, 6, 6.30 or something, and it's a woman called Susan Siderman, who's a big noise in Hollywood, I think, now. And she said, is that David? I said, yes, who is this? How did you get this number? And she goes, I'm sorry, but I've just been told to tell you that the shoot's off today. This is early... Saturday morning or whatever the hell it was. And I'm going, well, who the fuck are you to tell me this? She said, well, I said, who told you? To? Eddie Rosenblatt told me to say the shoot's off. And I went, fuck, and slammed the phone down. And Tawny was there and she goes, who was that? I said, nothing, nothing. So I called Marty Kalner. He said, you've had the call, haven't you? The video director. And I said, what the hell is this? He said, 
they found out they don't have a recruitment clause in your video thing. <laughs> oh, gee whiz. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. So he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll find the money from somewhere. Let's go ahead. Which video was that? Still of the night. Oh, boy. We shot 10 videos in three days, and, and, and all of them were just huge, you know? Hundreds of millions of views. If only it was Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> all of that, there's no way that any success story isn't accompanied by an enormous amount of landmines trying to fucking mess up, distract you, take advantage of you, insert themselves into you. It's extraordinary. Well, 100%. It's a testament to your resilience, as we mentioned before, off camera. My resilience thanks you, Peter. <laughs> you have a big birthday coming up later this year. And, you know, oh, you're yeah. celebrating over 50 years in music. It's incredible. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And I have the most amazing, happy, fulfilled marriage, which has gotten for 30 years now, literally with as much love as we have for each other, the COVID lockdown, it was both of us said to each other, it, our feelings became deeper and more profound. She's a, an immense inspiration to me. And the majority of love songs that I've written over the last 30 years have all been inspired by her. This is Cindy. And it's just glorious. My life sings happy melodies, Mozart melodies on a daily basis. Talk about social media. Do you enjoy being on Twitter and having a good time? Well... If you saw my house at Tahoe with all the gates and the cameras and the fences, you know, I'm Mr. Saturday Night when I'm touring, but I'm very much at comfort. You know, lockdown wasn't hard for me other than seeing the tragedy that was unfolding. I'm happy with my own company, with where I am in my life, with the experiences that I've had. My marriage, as I say, my children, my grandchildren, my career, everything is glorious in the garden. But I deal with being alone pretty easy. When I'm on tour, I'm kind of locked up anyway. Mm -hmm. Those days of endless, you know, staggering back at six o'clock in the morning after German nightclubs have closed, those are a thing of, that I remember fondly. <laughs> Well, you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Deep Purple in 2016. Yes. Do you look at your career now and say, I've accomplished everything that I set out to accomplish, you know, that day where I first started singing? Or do you still feel like you have more to achieve? No, totally more to achieve. These are just fabulous milestones, bookmarks, you know, glorious memory, unforgettable experiences. But Michael and I are already talking about the next project. You know, we right. open dialogue tomorrow for me to be able to do my farewell tour in 2022. So it really is 24-7. And Michael and I pretty much, and, and our business team of David Weiss and Glenn Davis, we pretty much run this fabulous thing called Whitesnake. Well, it's great. Congratulations on, on all the success. We can't wait to see you back on the road and thrilled to have you part of Warner Music and Rhino and all the oh. music to come. Mutual, brother. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. It's an honor. And I've got to tell you, at this time in my life, it's the cherry on the frosting of my particular cake to work with you people. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, David Coverdale. We'll see you soon. Thank you. In the still of the night, I hear the wolf owl, honey, sniffing around your door. In the still of the night, I feel my heart beating heavy, telling me I gotta have more.
Thanks a lot to David Coverdale for being so generous with his time. He's one of those guys you could talk with for hours. Visit Whitesnake online at whitesnake.com, where you can get upcoming tour dates as well as news of new Whitesnake and solo reissues and other new releases. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock.